Good morning, Collective Church. My name is Isaac. I get to be one of the pastors of this community, and it's great to be virtually gathering with you this morning. Um, you might, like I am right now, having a bit of screen fatigue from communicating with people pretty much that way <laughs> for like all of your talks and meetings and work and whatever. Um, but we just, we know that God is not limited by these things. And so we believe that God's spirit is alive and active and wants to speak to us this morning, even as we look at God's word together virtually over the internet. And so um, I'm just really blessed and honored to be able to share from God's word with you this morning. And we are uh, at the beginning of what we're calling um, Entering the Tension, which is a new series uh, in the Gospel of Mark that Pastor Ryan began last week. And so this morning, we're going to be looking together at the tension between rest and work, and specifically Sabbath rest. And we, we discussed the subject of Sabbath or Shabbat in Hebrew last summer when we went through our oddity series on the life of Jesus. And I actually taught that passage from this very section of the Gospel of Mark. And so there are some things this morning that I'm not going to get into as deeply about Sabbath practice, um, but specifically we're going to be looking at the tension between rest and and work, and how do we enter that tension? And since the time of this pandemic began, we kind of find ourselves entering into a time of forced Sabbath. Obviously, Sabbath was meant to be a good thing, um, but some of the effects of Sabbath we're experiencing right now due to quarantine life. Because the Hebrew word that I mentioned, Shabbat, for the Sabbath, actually means interruption or to cause something to cease. And it's mostly speaking of work. And some of us have felt that very viscerally during this time from being out of work or losing work. And some of us just experience that through having our work completely shifted and experiencing upheaval. And you know, as soon as this interruption started, every every company, every organization, and even every mom and pop store were all scrambling to figure out how they were going to respond and respond as quickly as possible to, to figure out what they were going to do during this time. And I was even getting emails from like Taco Bell, right? Like, you know, in these challenging times, you might not know where your next chalupa is going to come from. And you're thinking like, no, I was not thinking that at all about, but now I kind of want a chalupa. But it wasn't just corporations and companies like that. All of us were trying to examine our lives and how to work or figure out how to uh, have meaning in these new circumstances. You know, some of us have kids at home and we're having increased time in front of screens. Our kids are having increased time in front of screens. Some of us are having meetings on Zoom all day, and some of us have lost work all together. And, you know, 
people are responding to this in different ways. A lot of people are saying, oh, I can be so productive. I have way more time on my hands and I can try out all these new hobbies and stuff that I didn't have time for. Others are not having as much time because of increased demands from their home life. And for some of us, we just don't even have the motivation to try something new at all. And you're definitely not alone if that's you. I, I saw an image from a Portland-based artist named Michael James Schneider, and he's doing all of these balloon art uh, things during coronavirus to encourage people. And the image says, you're only unproductive by the standards of the world we lived in two months ago, and that world is gone now. And that is the reality many of us are facing, and we have to come to terms with many different things over these past couple months, and it happens at different rates. As Pastor Ryan reminded us a couple weeks ago, that people are going through different stages of grieving during this process, and it's all imp impacting us at different speeds. But however you're finding this season impacting you specifically, this morning, we have an opportunity to examine the nature of work itself and its relationship to rest and Sabbath and God's intention for those things. And the opportunity for us is to be able to not only balance those things, but also find where God wants to meet us and provide meaning for us in this time. And that maybe when this season changes as it has already begun to, and we enter into a new version of the world, we can approach our relationship to work with a brand new lens. So whether you're entering back into a physical workspace slowly or trying to find a new trajectory for your career all together, we can have our perspective reframed by God's word, what God says about work, so that we might not fall victim to either despair on the one hand or what author Ronald Rollheiser calls pathological busyness on the other, which was many of our MO before all of this started. And now we're finding that interrupted. But we want to think about work through the lens of vocation or calling, because that is how God's word speaks about work. And uh, in, in Tim Keller's book, um, Every Good Endeavor, he quotes another author named Robert Bella, who defines vocation, and he says, vocation is a return in a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all, and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. That is the intention for work. So right now, with new rhythms to our life, how, how are we supposed to cultivate this practice of rest versus work when we, some of us, rest in the same place that we work? And how do we learn to enter that tension now in a way that prepares us to preserve it for the future when things inevitably change? to rest from work, but work from rest. Most of us get this wrong all the time, and we you know, stereotype people who have a penchant towards over-resting or overworking, right? Like workaholics versus 
slackers. And the reality is that we always err to one side or the other. And even those who are further down the line from us on whatever side we err on, we kind of like have, we like stick up our nose at those people and we say like, well, at least I'm not like that person. They never leave the office. Or at least I'm not like that person. I don't even know what they do half of the time. So it's really hard to preserve this tension between work and rest. And the reality is all of us get it wrong because all of our motivations for work and rest are out of whack. And what usually happens is that we approach rest as a release for overworking, kind of like an emergency brake in a car rather than gradually pumping the brakes. So Jesus is going to show us how to enter this tension this morning. And it means seeing Sabbath rest not as a religious ritual, but as a rhythm of restoration. And it means recognizing that we do not work to discover purpose, but rather to live out our purpose. So Sabbath rest enables meaningful work and worshipful work enables satisfying rest. And so we're going to see that through first two conflicts that Jesus has on the Sabbath with religious leaders, and then three scenes that display how Jesus has work, has refocused work, and how we can refocus our work through three scenes that shows how Jesus works from that place of rest. So first is the conflicts on the Sabbath. So we're going to read from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 23. Before I do that, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we ask this morning that you would reframe our idea of rest and work. And during this time that we're experiencing upheaval and not able to understand necessarily how we are to be interrupted and reframed and how you're wanting to change us so that we can approach both of these subjects uh, with your eyes. But we ask that your spirit would do that for us this morning. And we know that you are not limited by screens. And as we're gathered in homes, um, that you can unite us. Lord, we are your church. We are your people. And I pray for anybody here who does not know you this morning, that you would reveal yourself to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It says, One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the scene is set. The Pharisees could just be on a leisurely stroll on the Sabbath, but more than likely they're keeping watch, a close watch on Jesus and what he's going to do with the Sabbath, waiting to point out his errors. And some of us can relate. Like you have that person in your life that you feel like is just waiting to point out something that you do wrong. Uh, yeah, I, I understand that. Don't raise your hand if that's you, but obviously I couldn't see if you did raise your hand. So Jesus' disciples basically get accused of doing what is not lawful 
on this Sabbath day, which was a day instituted by God for ceasing from work. And in the Jewish community, there was endless legal debate among the rabbis about what was considered work on the Sabbath and what was prohibited work. So what is not lawful about what they're doing? According to the restrictions of their day, Jesus's disciples broke three out of 39 prohibited activities on the Sabbath, reaping, threshing, and preparing food. So basically the Pharisees are nitpicking. They're trying to find a very small error that Jesus's disciples are doing so that they can accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And that reminds me a lot of the times that we're going on, we're, we're in right now, where people are getting very, I'll say religious, about quarantine and the regulations associated with it. On both sides of the debate, whether you know you fall on the side of thinking that these regulations are an overreach, or if you are getting frustrated with people not taking them seriously enough, people are being very religious about these restrictions. And there are people during this time who have to break quarantine, who have no choice, who have very little choice in the matter because they're not able to provide for their family and have either blue collar jobs or service industry jobs um, that don't have the luxury of working from home. And there are people who are hot and bothered about having their liberties taken away while others are being put at risk. And so there are people that need to ask themselves honest questions about what is more important during this time. Some of these regulations that kind of have people uh, frustrated or is, is the bigger problem that there is this massive injustice that's being revealed in our economic system for people who don't have the option to voluntarily restrict their freedoms and must continue to work to provide for their families. It's revealing this economic inequality where people are forced to work at service industry jobs and many of those who have the luxury of working from home are the ones getting hot and bothered on Twitter and like sitting on their phones tweeting outrage for either at the government for enforcing these regulations or at people who aren't taking the regulations seriously enough. People are getting religious on both sides. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be unsettled about what's going on, but about which things specifically, about injustice or about beaches closing or opening up again. <laughs> this is a really clear example of how the human heart is extremely religious when it comes to these things and can't see the real issue, the real principle that is at work. For example, <laughs> my, my neighbors, uh, my Jewish neighbors in our family, ever since this started, we, we went outside on Friday night for Shabbat and would social distance light Shabbat candles. And one night our other neighbor saw us lighting candles together, gathered together in our courtyard, and she screamed at us. 
And she said, how could you be celebrating at a time like this? And we were just, we were baffled. We didn't really know uh, how to respond to her, but it's just an example of people getting very religious with these regulations. How we respond to one another during this time reveals what we believe about what is going on. And we will all have different answers for what is supposed to be happening, how people are supposed to be responding during this time. But can you say that your response and your, your ability to interact with others about these regulations are in a response to God's character or your own personal preferences and political affiliations? This is not far from what was going on with Jesus and these religious leaders in this day. And so what Jesus does is he reframes their understanding of Sabbath by quoting from the Old Testament, from this book, from the book of 1 Samuel. And the example that he gives is when King David was uh, in need on the Sabbath and went into the tabernacle, the very holiest place in all of Israel, and took some of the bread that was only lawful for the priests to eat. And the correlation between Jesus' disciples and David and his disciples is their need. And what he's showing the Pharisees is that in their religious behavior, in, in their religious hearts, they're failing to acknowledge that the reason Jesus' disciples were doing this is because they were in need. And they are their neighbors. So they neglected to notice the need of their neighbors and instead preferred to ridicule them for breaking these religious laws. But Jesus is not just blowing them off. He's actually using this opportunity to teach them about what the true meaning of the Sabbath is. He's not saying, oh, I'm too cool. I can bend the rules whenever I want. He's reclaiming God's intention for a day that is focused on not obeying religious law, but on God's provision for his people and also God's purpose for his people. And, and finally, and most importantly, God's presence with his people. So that is why Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, verse 27, not man for the Sabbath. He's refocusing their understanding of the Sabbath on God's priority for it, presence, purpose, and provision. And specifically, the fact that God's presence was actually among them at the time, and which is why Jesus says in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is not engaging in a religious debate with the Pharisees. He's actually claiming authority over the Sabbath as the Lord of the Sabbath himself. This was not just a matter of religious interpretation. And it was the same in the case that, that, uh, the, of the story that Jesus used. He was saying this was King David in the Old Testament breaking Sabbath law. And the king had the right to interpret the law however he wanted in a way that would most serve the people. And this is the same in Jesus' day. This is the king that they were talking to. And they were accusing him, the Lord of the Sabbath, of breaking the Sabbath. And a similar situation plays out in the next scene of conflict 
in the synagogue, which begins in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read that together. It says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, the Pharisees did, to see whether he would heal him, this man, on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. So there's this setup going on. The Pharisees are watching to see how Jesus is going to interact with this man who has a disability, which is a need that is much more obvious than that of Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. But just in case the Pharisees missed that Jesus is trying to illustrate the need of their neighbor, he brings this man out in front of them before he interacts with him to heal him. In verse 3, it says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. So Jesus is inviting the Pharisees out of their blindness and hypocrisy, having compassion on them even in the midst of their pride. He draws out the principle that he just taught them earlier. The Sabbath was made for man, for this man, this man with a disability that Jesus was about to heal, but their response was to be silent. So his heart was actually breaking for these men as he perceived their motives to accuse him. And as they kept silent, he becomes angry with them. It says in verse 5, And he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was destroyed. And then, perhaps most ironically of all, in verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So the irony here is that the Pharisees confront Jesus about disobeying the law, while Jesus confronts the Pharisees about disobeying God. And while Jesus is upholding the intention of the Sabbath by restoring life, the Pharisees are desecrating the Sabbath by plotting Jesus' death. And instead of shaking our head at the Pharisees, we need to remember that the Bible always tells us stories of Jesus' interaction with them, not so that we can feel superior to them, but for the exact opposite reason. They are mirrors for us, for our own nature of religious hearts, for our own sinful nature. The Pharisees are doing to the Sabbath what all humanity has done since the Garden of Eden, which is that we take God's good gifts and we squeeze all of the blessing out of them until it becomes distorted by our religious hearts to the point that we can't even recognize it as a gift anymore. The Sabbath was made for us. And we view it with these religious eyes. So we try to be God by refusing to allow him to disrupt our hurried ways of life. Whatever your engagement is with the Sabbath or with the day of rest, whether you find yourself unable to do it because of overwork and busyness, 
or whether you're not able to rest because you're always resting and having a hard time distinguishing between the rest of your life of work and rest. There's a very clear distinction because it is supposed to be this interruption of our normal rhythms to focus us on God's provision, presence, and purpose for our lives. So ultimately, Jesus pointing out this hypocrisy in the Pharisees and pointing them back to the gift of the Sabbath is what cost him his life. This gift of the Sabbath is only surpassed by the gift that Jesus gave when he gave his life up for us, for our hypocrisy, and for our rebellion, our religious hearts. Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees about the condition of their hearts and their inability to receive God's gift is just as hard for us today as it was for them. So we are being challenged by our inability to receive God's rest. And we are supposed to understand that this is, this is a, a tension. This isn't easy to do to preserve this tension between work and rest. It is a gift from God that we are supposed to receive. And it's the hardest thing sometimes to receive a gift. So when we can rest from work, we can now work from a place of rest. With the ability to cultivate deep rest in God's presence, purpose, and provision, we can engage with our work in a way that does not attempt to create those things for ourselves, to create purpose or meaning for ourselves, to provide for ourselves, but to acknowledge that it's actually God's provision, or to rest in God's presence. So we're free to actually worship God in everything that we do, not just our work, but everything that we do, and pour ourselves out for the good of others around us. These next three scenes explain how Jesus' place of rest refocuses his ability to do what he was called to do, and it does for us as well. Verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So this is what happens when your work follows you, as it was for Jesus. When work is connected to your vocation, to your calling, it is not just a punch-in, punch-out situation. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here. Successful work makes it difficult to create boundaries because for some it can actually become an addictive thing like oh i'm doing a really good job i need to keep doing more but when jesus is confronted with this success and the potential for burnout he actually creates boundaries literally it says he got in a boat and distanced himself from these people that were clamoring for for his attention 
It's, it's unnecessary to allow responsibilities from success to and from work in general to burden you with the pressure to always be on and to conform to others' expectations of how you are going to work. Because Jesus knew his calling, he was able to create favorable conditions to actually work. Knowing your calling enables you to create these favorable conditions. And Jesus is confronted with this potential for burnout when everybody's clamoring for his attention and he creates boundaries. And next he's confronted with his identity and responds with humility. Verse 11, it says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He didn't, <laughs> he, he didn't say, you better believe I'm the son of God, right? When, when Jesus is confronted with this, this aspect of his identity from a source that wasn't stating his identity from a place of worship, he silenced them. So we're not very good with receiving praise when it comes to doing a good job. You think of a time when you received praise for a job well done and it didn't puff you up with pride? Uh, yeah, me neither. <laughs> I can't think of that. The reality is that we do not work from our identity most of the time, but instead we work for an identity, attempting to earn significance through a job well done or from the praise of others, which makes us prideful. Or it can also destroy us when we don't receive the accolades or the accomplishments that we desire. So what Jesus did is silence these voices clamoring for his attention and stating his identity at a time when he did not want to receive the praise for what he was doing. Jesus was content to do God's work and have it remain anonymous, to not point to his true identity because it was not the time for it to be revealed, because he knew what his calling was. So that's what happens when work was following him. And next we see a principle of how work must be shared in verse 13. It says, And he went up on a mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. There is a lot going on here theologically that we don't have time to get into why Jesus chose 12 apostles to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. But as it relates to work, the idea is that Jesus is sharing his workload with others. The situation of Jesus's success meant that he needed a team around him. From this place of rest that Jesus had, it enabled him to share his work, to give away authority through delegation and training other people. So to do this, Jesus took his team on a little work retreat in the mountains. He chose 12 of his disciples, of his hundreds of disciples, to join him in a closer 
team. And these people were not the people that were most inherently qualified for the job. They were incredibly flawed, but they were given authority to do this work, which shows us that work is inevitably involved in becoming like Jesus, in the process of discipleship, of following him. It is work. It is not a walk in the park. It is a way that Jesus passes his authority on to his people to become like him and to become his ambassadors in the world. And it's very often that we make the mistake of thinking that following Jesus is going to be easy. Like it's going to be like one of those uh, animatronic Disneyland rides, right? Like it's a small world where you get on the thing and you're taken on a journey through this magical place and you're not doing anything, but everything is just kind of like happening to you and at you. It's like, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that over there. And we do this in our discipleship, in our walk with Jesus. We think that everything's supposed to happen to us and that we don't actually have to engage it. Like, wow, look, I'm growing. Oh, wow, look, people are just asking me about my faith and I don't even have to go out of my way and become uncomfortable to talk to them about it. That is not (laughs) how it works. It is difficult. It is arduous. The disciples are not given menial tasks or grunt work to do. They are assigned to replicate the exact same mission that Jesus was about. This delegation of authority did not happen in a haphazard or irresponsible way, but in a very intentional process of deep mentoring and discipleship and apprenticing right? Jesus's disciples went up on a mountain retreat to be with him so that they could learn to be like him. He even gave them cute nicknames too, like, (laughs) right? In in, uh, verse 16, it says, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which means rock. Um, And he, he appointed James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, which there's probably some great inside joke as to why those were their nicknames. But this team that Jesus chose was also incredibly diverse. There is potential for a majorly unhealthy work environment. There was a zealot or a political insurrectionist on the same team with a tax collector who was in cahoots with the government. There were fishermen. There was a guy who would later betray him. I mean, these were not, this was not like the best group of people inherently, but, and there were certainly times that they had conflicts, but their time with Jesus enabled them to work with and for one another rather than their own interests. And so we've seen when work follows you, what happens when you need to share your work, and lastly, what happens when work follows you home. In verse 20, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, 
he is out of his mind. <laughs> they followed him inside his house. What's the deal? Does Jesus not know when to quit? <laughs> like, the very concept of work-life balance is called into question here. When Jesus actually ignores the wishes of his own family to continue working alongside this new team. And it is not because he did not know when to stop, but because his rest enabled him to be once again interrupted by God's plan. On the Sabbath, Jesus was out of step with the religious people, and on his work days, even as he tried to conclude his day, he was out of step with his family because they did not understand what he was called to do. Jesus's ability to be interrupted to fulfill his calling is exactly what it means to enter this tension between work and rest. It is not always a clear-cut thing. Jesus was able to be sacrificial with his time and his resources and his energy. He was able to be flexible, to bend with the changing demands of different situations and seasons. And he was able to be resilient, to be impervious to the ridicule of others when they misunderstood what he was supposed to be doing. Being interrupted by work and rest, the opportunities to serve those in need, is not the same thing as succumbing to the tyranny of the urgent. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about what interruptions really are in a letter that he wrote to one of his friends. He says, the great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day, what one calls one's real life, is a phantom of one's own imagination. Interruptions are people, and people are the real work. The calling God gives his people is not just for us, but for the good of others. Just as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians about the gifts that God gives his people to enable him to enable us to work for him. It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for what? For the common good. Work is for the other. And it is so hard for us to do this. Because God knows when we need to be interrupted. He knows that we need to be interrupted because we need to understand our great need for him. Some of us will never slow down long enough to acknowledge that we have needs in the first place. And the reality is that in this time, some of us are coming face to face with our deepest needs for the very first time with our freedom to determine what our lives look like day by day, have become drastically limited 
we're actually forced to examine what our lives are about. A pastor in um, Melbourne, Australia, Mark Sayers, describes this reality by saying that humans have three basic needs, freedom, meaning, and relationships. He says, we need reserves in our life of freeing relationships and meaning. These reserves need to be balanced with each other as they are systematically connected in our lives. We have forgotten the wisdom that to find happiness and fulfillment, we sometimes need to reduce our freedom to gain meaning and relationships. And friends, this is exactly what Sabbath rest is supposed to do. Reducing our freedom willingly to gain meaning and relationships. We must limit the freedom that we have during our normal work, the time that we usually make excuses that enable us to ignore everything, to ignore others, to ignore the needs that we ourselves have, to respond to people by saying, I'm too busy, or even to ignore the unhealthy habits that we've cultivated that prevent us from seeing the ways that God wants to change us. And we have been interrupted during this time. And we have the opportunity to examine these things. That's exactly what happened to me early on during this time. I found that I threw myself into caring for others around me, my family, my friends, my coworkers. And it was about a couple of weeks before I realized that I hadn't answered the question, how are you, honestly, in a couple of weeks' time. And I had to slow down and realize that this interruption was God trying to get my attention, that he wanted to restore me in rest, to slow down to be in his presence. And it exposed these pressure points easily hidden by the guise of activity. So entering this tension means giving up the freedom of self-determination our attempts to force God to adapt to our schedules and our rhythms and recognize that he has already etched his timetable into the fabric of existence itself. In the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, it says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is a rhythm that's woven into time itself. Many of us have a hard time taking the Sabbath because the thought of not being able to do our jobs means we don't know who we are anymore. If we lose our job, it means losing ourselves. But this time that we are offered right now is a time to re-examine what makes us essential in God's eyes. And it is not our jobs, but our very essence. Being created to reflect him in everything that we do. Giving to others, making a meal, eating a meal, cleaning up, being with our families, caring for our neighbors. These things and all other things of life have the potential to be work, yes, but to be worship. The Hebrew word for work is the same as the Hebrew word for worship. And we have the opportunity to give ourselves in service to God so that we become the kind of people shaped by his agenda rather than our own. And as life moves on in this season and inevitably changes 
we can be changed as well to conduct business and industry and education and family life in a way that enters this tension and reflects both who we are and whose we are.